Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Executive Pastor Lee Cadden continues our series on following Jesus, looking at Mark chapter 2. Well, again, welcome to Grace Auburn. My name is Lee. I serve as one of our pastors here. We started a series at the beginning of the year last year called Following Jesus, the simple idea of as believers in Jesus, we are called to actually follow him with Our life. The idea of followership is a little bit lost in our day. It doesn't necessarily have the same meaning as it did then. Today it involves hearts and likes and all the things that go with it. But in Jesus' day, it revolved around the idea of apprenticeship, of following someone who would be your teacher, one that would teach you a way of life or a rhythm of life and have a certain set of teachings that went with that rabbi, as he was called in Hebrew. Last week, Matt kicked our series off in Mark chapter 1, and there's this incredible moment in Mark 1 where Jesus tells all who would listen, if you will see and hear that the kingdom of God is at hand and repent and believe, there is a new thing that I'm doing, a new thing that I'm bringing into existence. It's the idea that the kairos moment of repentance and believing, this special appointed time, was intersecting the chronological time of their day. That heaven had prophesied were coming true and that things were no longer going to be the same, that the old teaching is the old way of relating to God was going to be different, fulfilled, as Jesus would put it later on. So today we're in Mark 2, and we're going to work a chapter at a time through Mark's gospel over the course of the next several weeks, or next 16 weeks, I guess it is, total leading up to Easter. And today, uh, in Mark chapter 2, there's an incredible amount of things that are just continuing to happen that pick up right from Mark chapter 1. Jesus is going to heal a paralyzed man. He is going to call all of the disciples, and then he's going to receive all types of questions about certain spiritual disciplines, specifically about fasting and the Sabbath, and how they had been taken out of context in his day, and Jesus shows them a new way of orientating or a new way of living living your life according to the word of God. So we're in Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bible, we're going to work through all of this chapter together. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home or he was at a home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near because of him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. There's an incredible amount of faith and determination in this moment 
to bring a paralyzed man in through the roof. Houses in that day would have had an exterior staircase that would have gained access to the roof. And the roof could have been made out of any number of things, but it at least would have had thatch, dirt, and probably clay tiles interwoven in all of it to make it somewhat rain-resistant or rain-proof. And so the idea of opening the roof isn't a clean process. Like if you've ever been involved with demolition, this is that, that kind of thing where they're literally taking apart in the middle of teaching this group of people who can no longer sit in the room with him. They can't even sit in the doorway and in the windows with him. They're out on the streets trying their best to hear what this new rabbi is teaching, this one who they have starting to hear rumors of and whispers of that this is the promised one. This is the one that would come. And they've either seen or they've heard witness of all of his healings and all of the things that he had been doing. And so this determined group of four friends, they're like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, we're going to get this guy in front of Jesus, and they literally bear his burden to the feet of Jesus, lowering him through the roof. And Jesus responds in an incredible way, showing that he has authority not just to heal this man, but to forgive him him of his sins. Jesus, over and over and over again, refers to himself not as the Son of God, though he is referred to that in the Gospels, but his favorite way of referring to himself is the Son of Man. R.C. Sproul points this out. He says, in the New Testament, most frequent titles of Jesus are Christ, Lord, and Son of Man. Jesus, when quoted, his favorite self-designation is Son of Man, appearing more than 80 times in the New Testament. And in every case except two, Jesus uses the title of himself. You see, this is significant for several reasons, and I love the, the depth that comes from the Old Testament of this saying and the kind of nuanced reality that they would have heard it in. So it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In verse 7 it says that one like a son of man came before the Ancient of Days. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. You see, everybody in that room who was a man would have said, well, I am a son of a man. And here this person is saying that he's not a son of the man. He is the son of man. He is the one that we have all hoped for that would have descended from heaven and would then reascend to the father and be with him present ruling and reigning, receiving a kingdom and a dominion that is without enough to point to the prophecy while at the same time confusing everybody that was going to be confused. Wait, aren't we all a son of a man? But here this man claims to be the son of man. Sproul continues, the son of man having descended from heaven returns there and is enthroned in glory. Jesus is saying, I have descended. I am heavenly. I am not from this earth. This title is full of theological significance concerning Jesus' deity. And this is part of Mark's aim to assure readers that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the Gospels were written to a people largely that had not seen Jesus face to face. 
And they were written in such a way that those who heard these stories, those who were telling of the witness and then giving that witness to others in churches and church plants all over the known world at that time, they were saying that this is true. It's reality. It's like gravity or oxygen. And yet in our day, we read about Jesus and it's something out there that if you choose to believe, that's great for you. But what is that if you don't believe this, it's like walking off of a cliff believing that you won't face the reality of gravity. You're dead, right? That's the truth. That's the reality. And the writers of Scripture were writing in such a way that we would believe with full confidence that these things are reality. And so when Jesus sees these men lowering their friend on a mat, he is the one who was prophesied, who was promised, who would come and receive a kingdom and a dominion that is without end. And so when he sees the man, his first concern is for his eternal destiny. Yes, healing was needed. More so, freedom from sin and healing from sin was needed. But both of them, Both the healing of his physical body and the forgiveness of his sins both required faith in Jesus. And ultimately, both will require death to realize and experience fully. So Jesus knew that in healing his body that it would eventually break down again. That at some point his earthly frame, even though it was healed temporarily, was going to be broken ultimately. What he needed most was to be made right with the Father. And then Jesus asks this incredible question after he's reasoned, after he's perceived their thoughts in his own heart. None of them said these things out loud and he condemns them for the things that they're thinking, hearing, and feeling within them for not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He asks the question, which is easier? And everybody in that room is like, they're both impossible. Like, I, I, you can't heal my sickness, forgive me of my sins. And no one in that room could do either one. And Jesus asks the preposterous question of which is easier, knowing that the answer is, uh, and he goes, that's right. They're both impossible for man, but not for me. Mark goes on in verse 13. He says, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician." But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Some context here, uh, to be a Jewish tax collector was similar uh, and seen as the equivalent of having leprosy. So it's not like these people worked for the IRS and they were just normal neighbors. To have completely abandoned the Jews, the Hebrew people, to have gone to work for Rome was both incredibly lucrative and completely treacherous to the other people of God. The social costs were high, even if he did make a ton of money. Levi, who would become known as Matthew, uh, would have had to basically surrender his entire life as a Jew over. He would have been considered a traitor, and he would have actually been required to hand in his membership card of the local 
synagogue. This wasn't a small thing. It was a deeply shameful thing. But if that weren't bad enough, to be the friend of a tax collector was to be considered just as bad. And so when Jesus is found having dinner in a tax collector's home with not just Levi, but all of his friends who had been completely shamed and ostracized by their families, now Jesus is thrown in the same boat. So in this moment, Jesus is as unclean to the Jews as if he himself had leprosy. That's how big of a deal it is that Jesus calls Levi and scandalous grace and mercy that would come to those who follow after Jesus. Jesus going after the lowliest. Jesus going after the outcast. Jesus going after the forgotten. Jesus going after, as he says it here in this text, those who are sick are the ones who are in need of a physician. J.C. Ryle says that the story of Matthew, who would become an apostle and evangelist, is yet another reminder of the the power of Christ to call men out from the world and make them his disciples. A ton of time to get into the significance of Jesus saying, come and follow me, to a bunch of people who had never heard a rabbi say, come and follow me. They had failed out of school, so to speak, in a way that meant they were not the ones who were going to become rabbis. They were going to, as soon as they finished their first set of schooling, they were going to go and work with their family and learn whatever trade it was that they were going to learn. Or they were going to completely abandon all of it and become a tax collector. And Jesus tells them all, come and follow me, and I will teach you a new way of living. Matthew saw something in Jesus that he wanted to join. There was something deeply compelling about this rabbi that was newly on the scene, healing and freeing and forgiving of sins and having paralyzed men who were dropped in from ruse get up and walk. And Jesus saw something in Matthew that is important for all of us to hear. Jesus didn't see Matthew where he was. Jesus saw Matthew where he was going. He saw Matthew and who he would become. And so when Jesus loves you, loves me, he doesn't do so because we're worthy or deserving of it. He does so because he sees his love in you working its way out for the rest of your life. He doesn't see a low life deserving condemnation. He doesn't see the wicked life of a tax collector or extortionist. He sees the changed life of a disciple, an evangelist, an apostle, and one of the writers of the gospel. So when Jesus says, come, follow me, Levi, who will be called Matthew, he calls him to leave his life completely, to abandon the Romans, to abandon the tax collecting, and to abandon even all of the lies that he's probably believed about himself. As I think about discipleship, as I think about Jesus calling his disciples and what it means for us to follow Jesus today, it's simply these three things, that you would learn to be with Jesus. In being with Jesus, you would become like Jesus. And as your life progresses in being like Jesus, that you would learn to do the things that Jesus did. I believe that's the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's the calling, the invitation that he gives his disciples And it is a wonderful, beautiful, scandalous thing that Jesus would come into our mess, that he would enter into the brokenness and would say, come and follow me. You don't have to have it perfectly put together, but you cannot stay in the tax booth. You have to come with me and learn a new way, learn a new rhythm. Mark goes on in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast 
your disciples did not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, the worst, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst and it's destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus, again, claiming his messianic divinity. The idea of fasting had been so lost in their day that they misunderstood what it was for. Fasting was and is not a mean, or an end in itself. It was a means to an end, a means of being with the Father. And Jesus is like, why are you asking that question? I'm here. Like It would be as silly as thinking and praying and waiting for someone when they're in the room with you. And Jesus is telling them they have no need to fast because I am with them. There will be a day when I will not be here, referring to his death and resurrection and ascension back to the throne. But that day fast, they have me here with them. The idea of an old, uh, an old garment with a, a new patch and an old wineskin with new wine is a little bit lost on us today. But I believe it's Jesus telling them, listen, all the things that you think you've known, they are not the thing that you think you know. I am a new way. I am a fulfillment of. I am the one you have hoped for. Wine today doesn't show up in a wineskin. It shows up in a bottle or a box, depending on your budget. Then it would have been stored in a wineskin. New wine would have been poured in unstretched wineskins for the purpose of when it was poured in as it stretched out and kind of made its um, way into all of the little crevices of the skin that it would have stretched its way. So you put new wine into an old wineskin and it bursts. And it doesn't hold up. Jesus is saying the old way, the old understandings, the old teachings, the things that have been added onto you by the Pharisees because they were adding many things onto the followers of God. That All of those things are not the way. I am teaching a new thing. Jesus, though, is not condemning the Old Testament law of God, but rather he is condemning, as I said, all of these extra among the Pharisees, warning them that they would not be able to see him as Messiah. They would not be able to follow him. They would not be able to recognize him because of all the structures they had put around the law of God and the word of God. Jesus was convinced, and I am convinced, that if they had held to the Old Testament and just the Old Testament and just what was written in it and not added all of their own extra commands to it, that they would have seen Jesus. They would have not missed who Daniel was referring to, but instead, all they can see is their tradition wrapped around what was good, holy, and right. There were laws that governed Sabbath and fasting and all of these things, um, and Jesus is quickly pointing out uh, several things in this section. I want to read the rest of Mark chapter 2, and we'll talk about both fasting and Sabbath together. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, here Jesus goes again, is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath was not made for man, 
but man, but not, not, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. For them, the, the, the idea of Sabbath was, came from Exodus chapter 20, where the Israel had, been, had received the law of God, the word of God from Moses in Mount Sinai. Uh, these laws were all wrapped around what it meant to be a holy people. The people of God had come out of slavery in Egypt. They had no idea what it meant to be set apart. They had no idea what it meant for their lives to look different so that eventually when the Messiah come, that they, the people of God, would be a light for all nations, pointing the way to the Messiah. And these rabbis in their day had taken all of the law of Moses and they had added on all of these things, things like this. On a Sabbath day, on a Sabbath day you weren't allowed to walk 2,000 steps. So 1,999 plus one, you were a Sabbath breaker in need of going and presenting an offering to God. You couldn't walk that far on a Sabbath day. And there was also the law of unnecessary labor, or i.e. reaping crops was the law that was originally given. That meant you were a Sabbath breaker if you did any type of work in that way on the Sabbath. And so here are Jesus and his disciples just going from one town to the next, walking more than 2,000 steps, more than likely. And as they're walking along, they're hungry, and the disciples start plucking heads of grain from the, from the wheat that they're walking through. And this group of scribes is like this, just following behind them, like looking for all the things that they're going to do wrong and trying to tick the boxes of all of the rules that they were breaking. And Jesus points out that even David, the hero of Israel, gave bread that was only intended to priests to his men who were in need. And that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that this was an incredible gift of grace from God to the people of God, that they might learn to walk with God in all that they say and all that they do. And Jesus, at the end of this section, declares that he is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself, again, the Son of Man, declaring his authority over all that had been said, all that had been spoken, and all of it finding its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. This is an incredible chapter of Jesus outlining and laying out what it looks like to follow him and who is allowed to follow him, who's invited to follow him, what's required to follow him, all of those types of things. And so it begs the question for us today as we think about Sabbath and fasting and Jesus' teaching and healing and all of those things, what does that mean for us today as we follow Jesus? From last week, remember, it was both surrender and obedience to Christ that was demonstrated and required of us as we follow him. Jesus obediently got on the cross. He obediently gave up his life to the glory of the Father. And the same is required from us. To follow Jesus, when he said, come follow me, meant a leaving of everything they had ever known. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, So then, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Put another way, to follow Jesus, first, you need to be with Jesus on a daily, regular basis. It says to be rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught. We are taught primarily by the word of God today. Would you be rooted and built up in him? Would you be with Jesus today? With the paralytic man, Jesus knew the greatest need. That yes, as we talked about, healing was helpful, but forgiveness was essential and ultimate. And so my question is, what does it look like for you to walk in the way of forgiveness? And to start with, have you fully received forgiveness from God? You can't forgive unless you have been forgiven. And if you've been forgiven, it's required then that you forgive. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, 
Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. As for Jesus and his call to Matthew, he called the last, the least, to follow him. And if you're here today, and if you've yet to trust in Christ, if you've, if you've believed the lie that you're not good enough and you need to get to a particular place, whether you've said that out loud or not, this, evident, this section of Scripture is evident that Jesus reads, sees, perceives, knows our hearts before we even say those things out loud. If you've believed the lie that you're not good enough and that you need to be good enough in order to be a disciple, just look at the leprous tax collector, the most unclean of all people. Today is the day you leave your tax booth and follow Jesus. What does it look like for you to believe that he is a friend of sinners, that he's not put off by your brokenness, that he's fully aware of it and yet still engages with you. And then with that, if you've believed that, are you familiar with your own sinfulness to see that God's grace to you is in fact a miracle? And can you then, because of that, and seeing Jesus and being with him and becoming like him, go, man, I cannot withhold grace from this person. I cannot withhold forgiveness and, and walk in newness of life. That's what it means to be a son or a daughter of God and follow Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's reconciled us, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, and he's entrusted to us this message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be with him, rooted in Christ, strengthened in the faith, become like him, bearing with one another and forgiving the grievances that you have, uh, that others, that you have against others. And in recognizing that you are becoming like Jesus because of the work of the Spirit in you, it is our responsibility as ambassadors to go and do as Jesus did. We have a message, we have a light that cannot be hidden. And if we believe wholeheartedly that this is true, then it is our highest privilege and our clearest message in all of life that it is to know, to love, and glorify Jesus. And I believe this begins with the recognition that he is always with us. That when Jesus says, come and follow me, and he makes your life whole and he regenerates your heart, there is never a moment where you are not in the presence of of God. Would you live like that were true? Because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and you will find rest. Rest for your souls. And so as for Sabbath rest, as Jesus finishes this section, what does it look like for you to cease from striving? Eugene Peterson says that Sabbath is the art or the act of doing nothing that is necessary. So if you try to think about the, the day of Sabbath rest, it's like, well, I need to do this. I, then I can't, I'm not going to do that. For me today to live as Christ would have me live is to make the confession that God has given me seven days. And on one of them, he said, set it apart and make it holy because it is for your good that you rest with me and cease from your striving and rest in God. When we think about rest when we think about Sabbath, most of us are actually thinking about vacation. So Mark Buchanan says this, leisure 
is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify time. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It is vacation, literally a vacating or an evacuation of life as normal. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us, demanding from us more than it gives. If you've ever said, I need a vacation from my vacation, or if you've ever finished a round of golf and you are more exhausted and tired because you haven't yet gotten to the place in golf that you want, it is leisure, not bad, but it is not Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is a ceasing from striving, and Jesus redirects all of the false teaching of their day to say that it's not about a keeping in a list of rules. It is about resting in the fact that God has given you your life, and he woke you up this morning, literally put breath in your lungs, and at least one day a week, I'm going to dedicate it to love of him to be with him, to be with my family and rest and to worship and to do nothing that is necessary, believing that while next week may come, that this week is over and it is finished. And it's good enough. It's not as good as it one day will be as I continue in my career or my parenting or whatever else, but it is finished. God, today is yours. Would you teach me to rest in you? And then the last question is, what does it look like to fast in our life today? Most of the time when we think about fasting, even them in their day as that Jesus was being questioned about fasting, we don't understand what it actually is. We think about giving up something when we think of fasting, but, but Donald Whitney paints an incredible picture of what we gain from fasting. He says, fasting has many purposes in our lives, including strengthening prayer, seeking God's guidance, expressing grief, seeking deliverance or protection, expressing repentance and returning to God, humbling oneself before God, expressing concern for the work of God, ministering to the needs of others, overcoming temptation and dedicating oneself to God and expressing love and worship to God. Or as Piper put it, and I love this, it's very succinct, fasting is a way of saying from time to time that having more of the giver surpass the gift. Having more of the giver surpass that of having the gift. Fasting is uh, an entire world of learning to trust that it is a means to an end. The end is Jesus, the end is time with him. The end is affection for the Father. Fasting is not giving up something because it's better for our health, though that may be important and good. Fasting is about saying, I'm going to do without so that I can focus and sharpen my affection when I would have been eating this, when I would have been doing this, that I might see the Father more clearly. That We would want more of the giver than the gift that he gives us. That's the purpose of fasting. But as Jesus, over the course of this gospel teaches about the kingdom and what it means to follow him, he's going to repeatedly talk about things that are means to an end. And the end is the joy of and the joy in and the pleasure of and the pleasure in and the glorifying of our Father in heaven whom is sent by whom Jesus is sent by and then learning to be with him, live like him, become like him and do what he did in our life for as long as we have it. So the questions that I have for us today as we think about this following Jesus is who needs forgiveness today? Who in the room needs to forgive today? Who needs healing today? Who is hearing the call from Jesus, follow me? Who is hearing the invitation to fast and pursue greater affections for God? Who needs to cease from striving today and experience 
Sabbath rest, true rest for your soul. And just as in Mark's gospel, where we see the unfolding of Jesus as the Son of God, where we see people being healed, we see people being forgiven, called and challenged, the Holy Spirit of God today is leading us to see and respond to the person of Jesus, that we too may walk in faith as we learn to follow Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we would follow you today. We give you our praise, we give you our affection, we give you our very lives, Jesus, and we recognize that there are places where we have not accepted your forgiveness and where we have withheld forgiveness. And so today, Jesus, we confess our sin to you in that, believing that we cannot withhold forgiveness where we have been forgiven much. And so, Father, would you lead us and guide us where we should give forgiveness as we have received it? Father, we believe that you are one who heals. And while we don't understand the means and the ends and why sometimes in this life you don't answer our prayers that we would be physically healed or mentally healed or emotionally healed, Lord, we know that on that day when we see you face to face, when our faith becomes our eyes and we see you as you are, that you will heal completely. You will set our bodies and our minds and our spirits free. Father, as we think about what it means to follow you and what it means to live as Jesus lived, would you teach us about the means of grace that you've given us in things like fasting and the beauty of a day's rest where we focus only and solely and fully on you, Sabbath as it is called. God, we love you. We worship you today. We remember your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, here in this place today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.